Welcome back to the Shit You Don't Learn in School podcast. This is Calvin Rosser. And this is Steph Smith. And today is Friday night. We have wine in our hands, and we're going to be talking about money and relationships. Clink, clink. Okay, so it is indeed Friday night. We are not out having fun. We are instead recording a podcast, but we do have wine in our hands, and that's what we consider fun. So before we kick off the episode. I wanted to quickly cover something in case people are wondering. I don't know how many of you out there are longtime listeners, but we did go on hiatus for several months and we're back, we think hopefully for the long run. But I wanted to address one of the reasons we disappeared. One of those reasons was that Cal and I didn't 100% see eye to eye on what the podcast was or really the topics we wanted to cover or the type of podcast we wanted to run. And really... The differences were that Cal, I think, wanted a much more authentic, real, like just two friends or fiancés hanging out and talking about things. And then I wanted that, but I also wanted every episode to be really dense. I wanted people to walk away with as much wisdom or information or new thinking per minute as possible. But that obviously weighs on you. You have to do a bunch of research. The editing is much more intense. And it's also just more high pressure as in it became less enjoyable. And so that was definitely on me. And we've returned with more of a, you could say, fun attitude towards it, as in we just want to show up and we just want to talk about things we're excited about. It might not be as polished as it was in the past, but I think it might be a little more fun. And one of the reasons I came around to this idea is because I really thought about the podcasts that I really liked, and a lot of them aren't polished, and a lot of them are more focused on fun than density of information. So just wanted to share that because you might see a little bit of a change in the podcast topics or vibe. And it relates to the episode we're doing today, which is really more of a personal topic. It's finances in relationships, two things that are often not talked about because they're very personal. And so we opened up the bottle of wine and decided to kick off one of our first episodes back with this topic. Cal, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think one of the reasons I want to talk about this topic is we just did a three-part series on the narratives behind marriage and monogamy and all kinds of things. We just got married. We talked about that experience. And I think one of our goals in getting married is to have a long-term partnership that lasts the test of time. And if you just look at the number of divorces out there, it's a pretty alarming divorce rate. And one of the leading causes of relationships not working is money. And I think there's many reasons for that. We'll talk about how we think about that. I think we do actually a pretty good job around aligning on money. I think it's one of our strongest parts of our relationship at this point. And so I want to talk about like how we approach this, how it looked over time, because as you mentioned, people don't often talk openly about this or really share the details that matter of how do you organize your finances? How do you think about them? What do you do when there's conflict? So I'm excited to just dive in and talk about this thing that's a part of our relationship and pretty much any relationship. On that note, I know we have a lot to cover. And I know we're in a much better place today, but something that I was reminded of just as you were talking, Cal, was a conversation we had in the earlier stages of our relationship. I think it was more of a hypothetical, but I think at the time you asked me something like, hey, if I left my job, would you support me financially? And I think I said no at that time. I think I straight up said I was not ready for that, which is interesting to reflect on now because we do share finances and we'll get to exactly what that looks like. But do you remember that conversation? 
Yeah, I remember that crystal clear. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because I'm in such a different headspace about money and how it relates to our relationship that that sounds so foreign. But just to share with people listening, when you would ask me that, I was not in a place where I think I was comfortable with my own financial situation. And I actually was doing well by that point. But what I mean by that is I wasn't acclimatized to that. And I think I was still figuring out exactly what my relationship with money was. And so I was just truly not ready to bring someone else into that because I think I still had a bunch of personal money issues and how I thought about it and how, quite frankly, stingy I was about everything (laughs) in life. And so I think I've evolved from there. But yeah, interesting to reflect on that. Yeah, I think something that we might talk about more, I'm not sure, but we've definitely mentioned it on other podcasts. We both grew up relatively low income. And I think a lot of those experiences early in life shaped the way that we thought about money. And as we started doing better in our careers, there were all these like sticky bumps or points in the road where even if we were doing okay on paper, our psychology was not okay. And that still happens today. So can we just super quickly be specific about some of those things? So first, my family was lower middle class. So we had funds, but I also knew throughout my childhood that they were in a significant amount of debt and that we were really spending outside of our means. So there was always this weird relationship with money. And then Cal, your mom was a single parent and was it 12,000 a year she was making? I think she never made more than like 15K per year. So you were in a much different financial situation. And then just to quickly share a couple specifics from when we got older, I'll share mine and then Cal, you can share yours. There's just so many things like I still to this day (laughs) have remnants of this, but I will spend hours looking at flights because there's just a threshold of what I'm comfortable spending there. I also just can truly not imagine paying for business class as an example. I have certain thresholds in terms of spending on food, on clothing. I bought a $6 pair of jeans the other day which Cal was very disappointed in because they're not the nicest jeans, but I just have these habits of even though I've made more now, I struggle to not fall back on that mindset. Cal, do you want to quickly share a couple of yours? I mean, there's probably a long list here, but we literally have an episode on this. It's called It's Time to Leave the Casino. But I got pretty involved in investing some of the extra cash that I had, and I ended up losing some portion of that in the market. And that really affected my psychology. It was like, feeling like I had built a nest egg and then losing part of it actually sunk me into a scarcity mindset where I, in my mind, or at least the feeling in my body was, oh, I'm going to be homeless. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I think a lot of that relates to, I don't really have a backstop. So I don't have my parents anymore, but if anything, money actually flows to my family and not towards me. And so I've always felt a little bit envious of some of my friends who have parents that could step in and help them out if things went wrong. And so that's always been a struggle for me, which is falling into a scarcity mindset, whether it's losing money in the market, or I feel like we're overspending or living outside our means. That's a big one. And then just other ones, I'm acutely aware of how much things cost. It's always funny to me to hear that people don't know the price of milk. I'm like, I will always know the price of milk, (laughs) regardless of whether or not that is actually meaningful towards my financial situation. Like it's just baked into my head, a price sensitivity that I think will always be there. And I've over time learned how to spend. And actually, I think more importantly, learned how to spend on the things that matter to me and not spend on the other ones. Those are just a couple. But I think as we go through this, we'll maybe learn more about those things as well. 
Yeah, but I do think it's important for people to get a sense of how acutely attuned both of us are to finances. And I don't mean that we're financial experts, but more so, like you said, you know the price of milk. We both have spreadsheets where we used to track everything we were spending, how much our net worth was increasing or decreasing every single month. We both did that independently before we came together. And so I think that's something that I guess you could say is an asset. Some people are like, hell yeah, you should be tracking this stuff. Also, just on the note of you being surprised, people not knowing the price of milk, I'm always surprised when people go bankrupt and they don't expect it for the same reason, because it's like, how do you not know how much is coming in and leaving? But anyway, I think that's maybe a theme that we both brought with us into the relationship. And then it was also an interesting dynamic once we had to fuse that, because I think both of us were so acutely attuned to our own finances. And it's, I know my equation. And I don't know if I'm ready to mix up that equation and add another person into that, or at least that's how it felt. Yeah. One of the challenges for us was actually just the merging of really strong independent views about money and the ways that we did that and figuring out how do we then share expenses or think about things like, what if one partner is making more than the other? Or what if one partner wants to live a more lavish lifestyle? And so I think one good starting place for this topic is six months ago, you and I sat down. And I think we were doing okay from a money perspective, but we actually just sat down and I think we had dinner and maybe we had wine that night as well. And we just opened the kimono. I was like, here's all of my accounts. Here's what I have. Here's how I think about money. You did the same thing. And what we ended up doing through that experience was I think one, giving an even deeper level of transparency than we had before. But the second thing was developing a little bit of a working philosophy of money. And so I wanted to go through some of the actual defined philosophies that we talked about on that night. Does that work? Yeah, let's dive in. I want to share one caveat here, which is that this philosophy, in my opinion, is our very left-brained selves saying, hey, this is how we think about it. We feel very rational. We feel good about this philosophy. But it's not to say that we're crystal clear all the time in real life, as in we still get emotional about money. We don't so much fight about it anymore, but I just think there's still these like emotional patterns that arise. This is the emotion-separated philosophy, if that makes sense. Yeah. So just zooming out, I wanted to share a quote from Morgan Household, who wrote a really good book called The Psychology of Money. And if you've never thought too deeply about your own money psychology, I think it's a great starter book for that. But he has a point where he says in the book, the ability to do what you want, when you want, with who you want for as long as you want is priceless. It is the highest dividend money pays. And I think in some sense that kind of summarizes how both of us think about money in the sense that it's not just about increasing your net worth number over time or having some number of material possessions, but it really is about being able to live life without having to think so much about money. And we spent most of our lives thinking a lot about it, learning about investing, figuring out how to save and earn more through our jobs. But I think in our highest ideal, basically, we get to live our life doing what we want almost freely and not really thinking about the cost of that, or at least not letting that impact our emotions. Does that resonate with you? Yeah. I think one of the biggest takeaways for me is that I could intellectualize this idea that money is a tool, but my actions in the past weren't actually showing that. I let money direct what I wanted to do instead of the other way around. Sounds like you're reciting number one on our philosophy. Which is? Ne- Never allow money to come between our partnership. It's a tool that should allow us to do more of the things we enjoy instead of fearing what we might lose. Invest in the partnership freely as well, even if it's expensive. 
that includes things like couples therapy and fun experiences and anything else that brings us together. That's a worthwhile investment. Yeah. I think I adopted this relationship with money from maybe my parents, either actively or passively, but they are always thinking about what's the sale at Costco or how can I ship this thing in the cheapest way or just things like that. And I see where their mentality is coming from. And sorry, mom and dad, if you're listening to this, but I had to really work on figuring out what was worth spending on. And I think couples therapy is an example of something that we've invested in, which by the way, we should probably do an episode on that because I was very skeptical. Cal really wanted to do couples therapy. And I was like, I don't know. I think therapy works for some people, but not me kind of deal. And it's worked. So that's an example where I think you even framed it this way, Cal. You're like, what price would we pay to make sure our relationship works out? And of course, therapy doesn't ensure that. But it's like, what would we invest in to increase the likelihood that we're happy for a very long time together? When you position it like that, it's like, okay, of course, (laughs) a lot of money. But that's an example of, yes, there are ways that you can use money as a tool versus viewing it from a lens of scarcity. Cool. And so rule number two in our philosophy is always have one year worth of cash in the bank. And so some people who are avid investors, I have a friend who's like, you know, I'll never have more than 1% of my net worth in cash. I think for me and you, because we're a little bit more risk averse or we want to mitigate risk, one of the things we realized about our psychology of money is we need to have enough cash to feel like we're okay, even if that means we're missing out on investment returns. And so I think another point to clarify is both of us have paid off our student debt and everything else. And so we have excess cash flow over our expenses and we've thought about investing. And as we've done that, we realized that having some amount of cash that makes us feel okay in the event we lose our jobs or we take more risky paths is very important to us. And so that one year worth of cash, I think is a bit higher than what someone would recommend, which I think is like three to six months. But for us, that was a rule that I think ties into our unique psychologies with money and one that I actually feel great about. By the way, you mentioned Morgan Housel and his book, Psychology of Money. One of the key takeaways for me from that book was something he said around the fact that there's a lot of financial advice out there, but you don't know who's giving that financial advice and what situation they're in. And I would also tack onto that what psychology they have. And something we realized in developing our own philosophy around money was that we clearly don't have the same philosophy as each other, but also we don't have the same philosophy as our friends or all of these other gurus who are saying, do this or have only this much in the bank or invest in these types of things. And for us, it was about figuring out what made our psychologies relax. And so having more cash in the bank was important to us. Yeah. And on this one, there really is no right answer. To me, the right answer is whatever allows you to sleep at night without thinking too much. I just noticed that as my cash reserves went down and my situation was less stable, aka like when I left a full-time job, I was happy to give up a couple percentage points of return just to have that psychological safety and really not to think too much about money. Okay. What's number three? Number three. So this is about learning how to spend money, which I think was a journey for both of us. Maybe one where I started a bit earlier than you and you kind of caught up in different ways, but we are free to spend on anything related to health, learning, friendships, and experiences. So maybe each of us values those categories differently, but I think we both align that when it comes to those things, health, learning, the people we spend time with, the activities we do together, 
we don't want to limit ourselves to some sort of budget. Those are things worth investing in. They last a lifetime and they increase your quality of life more so than saving a few extra dollars. By the way, one example of investing in friendships is going to weddings. Something that I thought was really funny this summer was we're both getting to the age where a bunch of our friends are getting married. And I had, I think, maybe six or so weddings this summer. And to every wedding I got invited to, I tried to go. And I think I actually did go to all of them, including one where I did a red eye all the way to Europe. And when I got there, of course, they were super nice. And they said, thank you so much for making the journey. But also, so did my friends who weren't so far away or it wasn't so hard to get to. And I remember thinking, wait, doesn't everyone go to their friends' weddings? Isn't that just a thing that you do for your friends? You show up for them in that way. And I thought it was interesting because, of course, I realized, oh, wait, all these other people are missing. People don't always make that effort. But that's one example of if you do have the money, and of course, not everyone does, that's an area that I just think is a no-brainer to invest in. 100%. So our fourth rule is don't expect your net worth to increase every month. And This one is not unique to us, but I think it had a particularly important effect on us, especially as markets started going down. But you and I were both independently and then jointly tracking our net worth on a monthly basis. And for most of my life, that was actually a good exercise. I saw things going up. The chart was looking pretty good to me. And then there's been a period over the last year where that hasn't been true. And in fact, things have gone down significantly. A lot. (laughs) A lot. A lot more than I ever... (laughs) thought was possible. And interestingly, that was having, at least for me, a very negative effect on my psychology. And so over the last five to six months, I actually have stopped tracking my net worth in that way. And at the same time, adopted this mindset, this philosophy that we're talking about, which is our money situation is literally not about just moving that number up into the right. What is the point of money? Money is a tool to do the things that you want. And so I've more fallen into the category of hey, if I have enough money to pay my bills, do the experiences I want, spend on the things that I want, it's okay. And if we have extra cash, that's amazing too. And things will go up and down in markets. And if we're heavily invested, we can't expect things to just be going up and to the right every time. That was a journey for me, but I actually feel pretty good about that now. Can I just say that this conversation is making me realize, which I guess I already knew, but it's making me reflect on the fact that tracking your net worth in particular, which is something we both did, can be really unhealthy, especially during a down market. And not just because, of course, stuff is going down, but I remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I'm working this hard every single week, every single month to make a good salary. But because the market was pushing my net worth down so much because I was getting RSUs, but I also had been somewhat invested. And I was just like, is this just all a waste? And I started like spiraling. And I was like, how can I be working this hard at this company and my net worth be going down? And of course, it had nothing to do with the company, but it was like pegging myself to a certain net worth at a given time instead of just continuing to do good work and focus on what I enjoyed and what really mattered. So I do think the net worth calculation can be pretty hindering. Yeah. And I think in our case, it was particularly pernicious because it was related to things outside of our control. It was investments that we had made and there was a total down market. This is very different than I think if you started just spending crazy amounts of money or going to the casino all the time and just gambling like a maniac, and you actually probably should be aware of the things that 
are hurting your net worth. But I think for us, it was actually making us like tighten our budgets or at least tighten our minds in a way that was not aligned with how we wanted to spend money. And it was related to things outside of our control. And that to me was, I think, a signal. It took a while to actually register that signal that maybe this practice I've been doing for my whole career actually isn't as worthwhile now. That's actually a really good point because people notice this a lot in business where they say, okay, one CEO will get us to a certain size. But then once we get to that size, we actually need to transition and get a different kind of CEO who has a different skill set. And I think that actually applies really well here where what we did in terms of being really meticulous and really careful about what we're spending and what we're tracking was helpful to get us to have no debt, to get us to the point where we actually had ascending net worths. But then at a certain point, we just continued that where I was continuing to do the same things every single month. And then there's a point where it's almost like you got to become that new CEO. You got to think about your investments differently. You got to think about just the way that you relate to money differently. And it took me probably too long to get there. I would have been fired if I was a CEO. Yeah, maybe. But at the same time, give yourself slack. I try to as well. I think one of the things that's been most difficult for me in my journey with money in general has been to be compassionate when I make mistakes or I do things that are not perfectly optimized because I know the best answer. Like I've read all the books, I've learned the process and all of that. But when I make mistakes, I really beat myself up for it. And I think this was one area where, hey, it's actually important to know what your net worth is potentially. But one thing I underestimated is as you start exposing yourself to more risk in markets or other investments or just things that may or may not pay off, you have to think about this a little bit differently than at least when I was out of college. I'm like, I want to pay off my debt. I want to make sure I have enough money in the bank. I want to know how much I have to invest in travel and new experiences. And then I think we had a point where we were able to do those things without thinking too much, but we also along the way built good habits around spending and thinking about money. Those are things that basically will benefit us for a lifetime because we did this. Just a quick note on reorienting around size of net worth. Not to say we have this much money, but I think I remember seeing someone on Twitter sharing their like mint profile or something like that. And let's just say they had $10 million. If all 10 million of that is invested in the S&P, the S&P easily in a given day could go up or down 1%. And that's obviously not even the extreme versions of what can happen in a day. 1% of $10 million is $100,000, which for us, even to this day is a lot of money, but certainly for 18 year old me, that would be like a holy shit moment because it's a holy shit amount of money. And that's just an example of how you're right, that you can't have the same level of awareness almost because it will just freak you out if you have maybe the past relationship with money that we both had. Okay. Why don't we move on to the next one? What is it? Spend freely on anything under $1,000. So I actually want to just double down on this one because I think in relationships in particular, and especially as you really join finances as we have, it's very important to define what you're comfortable the other person can spend without really asking or talking to you about it. I know we've both listened to Ramit Sethi's podcast. He wrote a book called I Will Teach You To Be Rich, which is terrible title, but actually decent content. And then he has a podcast where couples talk about money. And there's people who are like decamillionaires who start freaking out if their spouse or significant other spends more than $100, which is crazy when you get to that level of net worth. And so this number, ours, of spend freely on anything under $1,000, we're not actually making purchases of that size or larger 
very often, if ever. But on some sense, it allows us, I think, actually a lot of freedom and wiggle room to do the things that we want. Yeah, I actually think it was really helpful for us. And I think some of the rules we've shared so far can be applied to the individual, but this is one that's really important in a relationship just to have trust at a certain level. And of course, you can spend more than $1,000 in our case, but then that warrants some conversation. It might be three seconds. It might be 30 minutes. But why don't we just quickly share a few examples of where maybe in another relationship that couple would have had to talk about things or check things with their spouse. But for us, because we've set this rule up, we feel comfortable just spending on things that we really enjoy. So I can kick things off. I really like this subscription clothing service called Newly. Obviously not affiliated with them, but for me it's like maybe 100 bucks a month or something like that and I get to rent these clothes and I feel special and something that I would not have been able to afford back in the day, but that's something that whether I want to do that, whether I want to buy an item at the end of the month, I just don't have to ask Cal and it actually makes me feel really good to just have that control over what I want to do and something that I know that makes me happy. How about you, Cal? What's something that you have spent on that this rule helps you feel really good about? There's a lot of things. Last weekend, I took a free diving course. I think it was $400. I didn't even have to think about telling you about that. I was just going to do something that I enjoyed and that was totally fine. I think I spend maybe a couple hundred dollars a month on supplements or fitness related things. And that's another thing where I'm often experimenting in that domain. And sometimes that number flexes up and down. Basically, like I can just do that without being like, hey, Steph, can I buy my protein powder? Which (laughs) everyone has a different situation. And I think in our case, we're actually pretty good about trusting one another. Another area where it comes into play is I do most of our logistics planning. That means I book all the flights, all the hotels, all the activities that we do. And as I do that, I think I've built up trust with you over time of, you know, not booking a thousand dollar a night hotel or something that, you know, would violate your sense of what you're willing to spend on an experience. And so I think that's another piece of this as well as we have this somewhat formalized rule around a thousand dollars. But at the same time, I think there's trust built over time of knowing what are we both comfortable spending on and how do we value different things? For example, you said you'd never book business class. I actually found a way to get like cheap first class tickets one time and you were stoked about that experience and you really weren't worried about the money. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't have booked it for myself, but I think that is what's nice about sometimes being in a relationship. And I find that sometimes I'm more generous with other people. Like I'd buy someone else a gift that I wouldn't buy myself. And so I think just having these rules is nice because some of these might sound really obvious and they are, right? Spend on your health. Everyone says that. But I actually think having them somewhat codified is helpful because when you go to spend on your health, for example, if you haven't discussed these things before, I think you fall into your old tendencies. And for some people, that tendency is always spend. But some people, that tendency like us is, no, 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 this isn't worth my money. And It sounds silly, but Ramit, who you mentioned already, he talks about the fact that people always teach you how to save. People never teach you how to spend. And that is almost like a skill and you have to be careful with that. But learning how to do these things in a way that benefits both of us has been interesting because it's it's truly not something you're taught in school. I think what's also been helpful around having this rule and just related like support of one another is... 
there's times when I enter scarcity mindset and I'm like, I'm not buying anything. I don't even care if this makes me happy. I'm just going to cut myself off from the world because I don't deserve anything. And you, when you see this happening, you actually step in, we'll be in, I don't know, Lululemon or something. And you're like, Cal, I can really tell you like that shirt. And I'm like, I don't deserve this shirt. It's too expensive. And you're like, fuck that. I'm going to buy it for you as a gift, or we can totally afford this. It doesn't even get close to our maximum here. And I think sometimes we're able to unlock each other's psychology just by being comfortable with a certain amount of spend. You're ridiculous about this stuff though. So I would say that I am I have a scarcity mindset to deal with in general, but you will oscillate. When you feel good about our financial situation or things in general, you'll be, yeah, super giving, super generous, both with other people, but also with yourself. And you'll just be like living a great life and not spending like crazy, but just really living within your means in a positive way. But then when things go downhill, like the markets that happened earlier this year and still, I guess, continues to happen, you are so binary and you will just go into complete scarcity mindset way more than I do. And you'll revert back to when you were way less wealthy, only buying black beans. We'll go to the supermarket and I'll ask if you want mangoes or something. And you'll just be like, no, 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 we we can't afford mangoes, even though we are doing perfectly fine. So yeah, I think you, you definitely, you oscillate pretty strongly. That's hilarious. Yeah. I'm definitely not perfect on this one, but I actually think having a rule around maximum spend is important. And just to give a counterexample, I recently thought of an investment that would be good for me and Steph that was more than a thousand dollars and significantly more than that. And so I just said, Hey, Steph, like, here's this investment. This is the basic return. Here's like the risk profile. What do you think about this? And it was a super quick conversation. There was a lot of trust involved. And Steph's like, Yeah, go for it. And I think that was an example of, Having that rule allowed me to have that conversation in a pretty easy way. And in this case, you were comfortable with it. If you weren't, you would have been able to voice that. And so we have some sort of trust there around that thing, which actually helps with bigger purchases and longer term decision making as well. Yeah. Just on that note, the specific investment was an (laughs) I-bond. So it was very low risk. And if people don't know what that is, it's some sort of government bond. But in any case, there are definitely more intensive conversations that we'd have for other things. But actually what I wanted to quickly note on in terms of investments is that even though this is not investment advice or it is not scientific at all, I think sometimes it's fun for Cal and I to have our own investment theses or approaches. And mine is a very terrible approach of of a lot of cash. But I've seen the same with, I think, Pomp and Paulina. I think they've publicly talked about the fact that She's just in ETFs and like a more traditional strategy, a lot of cash as well. And then Pop is crypto king. He he invests a lot in crypto. And so I think it's fun, even though you have joint finances, to be able to place your own bets or to be able to have your own theses. Ideally, those kind of balance out in a way so that you have some sort of diversification. And I think we've actually found somewhat of that. And I think that's actually a perfect segue into our sixth piece of our philosophy. Our sixth rule is update the family portfolio and discuss money quarterly. And so I think this is basically like, hey, we don't want to live in spreadsheets all the time. We don't want to be tracking our net worth like in a crazy way, but we do want to sync four times a year, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be that formalized. And we basically want to say, hey, like, where are we at right now? What's been going on the last few months? Is there anything you want to change? Anything you want to add? Any ideas that you've come to the table with? Maybe 
Steph has suddenly turned from a cash queen to a crypto legend. Who knows? But that would be a forum for us to talk about those things. And why I think that's important is because you and I managing our own net worths, you had this approach of like heavy cash. You wanted to focus on generating income. You weren't investing that much. And for me as a more classically trained, hey, you need to have at least most of your money invested in the market. So it compounds over time. It was really frustrating. It was like, come on, you must be able to do this math. You talk about being quantitative. You talk about information dense podcasts. Why can't we just set up a little automated thing where you're investing in the indices and many reasons for this, but that was a little bit of a point of tension. And I actually think our finances from an investment perspective are at this point more complicated than we want because they're in separate accounts. But the point is we have this forum where we're able to talk about these things and we can say, hey, here's where we're at right now. Here are the like 10 things we're going to do over the next quarter to make some small improvements towards our longer term vision, which is like a simplified investment portfolio where we can sleep okay and feel good about money and not really have to think too much about it. In my defense, we've done an episode on this. My orientation towards cash or things like that is not because I think it's the best investment strategy. And again, not investment advice. None of this is. It was more laziness of not wanting to figure it out and wanting to figure out how I could invest all my energy into making more money versus my money making me more money. But also, I thought of a really good analogy as you were talking about this idea of when we first started out, we were all hyper-obsessed about money and then also going back and forth and trying to figure out the right joint, I guess, investment strategy for the family. And then now we meet quarterly and you could actually imagine a scenario where soon we meet yearly or something less frequent. And it's like a plane. So when a plane takes off, the two times when a plane is most likely to crash are when you are taking off or when you're landing. So during those times, a pilot has to be very focused, right? To make sure that they're saving their own life and everyone else is on the plane. But when they're in the air, they can coast. They can say, okay, I've done this before. I know what settings need to be on and I can let this thing run for itself. And so it took us some time to get through the takeoff period and make sure, okay, we're good. We're in a place where things are going well. We mostly align on things. And now I think we're finally getting to this coasting period where it's not to say, I mean, there are stories of pilots who fall asleep and things like that, but pilots still need to be awake and if something goes wrong, you need to be at the wheel. But I think it's like that. What do you think of my analogy? One thing I was thinking about is that conversation where I'm like, hey, if I choose a different path, would you support me? And you're like, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, turns out the pilot didn't care too much about the other passengers on board, even if they were developing some sort of bad disease. (laughs) Trying to think of how this fits into the airline analogy. I think that one was more like, hey, I don't have a ticket for this flight. Could you put me on standby? And I was like, not yet. And then I did it eventually. That's right. That's right. And the plane was empty and standby should have just been a filled seat. (laughs) No, but in all seriousness, I think you're right. I don't know what the right cadence is to meet, but the point is to have a space where we can talk about these things over dinner. It's not too serious. It's just to give a specific example. When we met six months ago, you didn't really have credit in the US because you're from Canada. And so one of the actions items was like, hey, Calvin, figure out how I can get credit, which meant like adding you as a joint person on my credit cards. And 
just starting to do things that were easy for me to do to help us just be overall in a better position. And that didn't increase our net worth or anything, but it did help us as a couple and not just as like individuals thinking about how do I maximize my piece of this pie? And so I think the point is having a space to talk about these things openly is very helpful. And I feel good about that regardless of whether we do that quarterly or yearly or whatever works for us over time. Exactly. And now update, I now have credit. You do, which is wonderful. All right. Let's move on to the last one, which is something you have used in different contexts, but I think it's especially applicable here is this idea of not letting the tail wag the dog. And since this is your saying, Cal, I'm going to let you explain it further. Sure. So I usually harp on this about when you're thinking about where to live, don't move to Florida or Texas just because they have lower taxes if you don't actually want to live there. I think of that as a short-term decision of basically letting the tail wag the dog. You're saving 10% in taxes to be in a place you don't want to be. If you want to be in those places and that's just like an added plus, that's fine. I think we talked about this in our episode about deciding where to live, which is one of our more popular episodes. It's episode 52, if you want to find that. And in this case, it's actually a broader thing. If you start diving into the world of personal finance and you get serious about it, you can actually get sucked into rabbit holes that I think are interesting for some people, but not for us. So for example, one of the most popular movements is FIRE, financial independence, retire early. And so this is the idea of make a lot of money while you're young, invest that in index funds or things that will compound over time, and then draw a small percentage of your net worth such that you don't ever have to really work again and you can live freely. And often what it requires to do FIRE well is to reduce your expenses, try to increase your income as much as you can. And basically sacrifice in the short term so that you can like optimize for your future self who's going to have total freedom. I don't think there's anything wrong with this idea. And there's another version of it called fat fire where you actually get to spend a lot of money and it's not just about cutting expenses. But at the same time, I think based on my experience in life, I think life is short. It's not just about having enough invested so that you can draw down a certain amount to spend. Life ebbs and flows in different ways. And so I don't want to fully optimize for my future self. I want to make smart, prudent decisions. But at the same time, I don't want to move to a place with lower taxes just so I can retire earlier. Or I don't want to not spend on going to my friend's wedding or be a cheapo for 10 years so that I can have my net worth increase. And I think, Steph, you align with this in different ways. But the point is, don't just optimize for your future self at the expense of your present self. There's some sort of balance that you need to strike. And I don't think there's a perfect answer to that. But I think both of us are at least somewhat aligned on this idea that we want to enjoy our present life while working towards a better future as well, but not sacrificing the present for that future. Yes. I think we've talked about this in different dimensions, but I just think that a lot of people trade off the present for the future. And there's a balance to that. But I just think we maybe lean more towards, hey, enjoy things while they last, which is why we were both nomadic for a long time, which is why we've both made maybe different career decisions than other people. And I think it definitely applies to money as well. A specific example of this is I have not been full-time employed for, I think, about a year and a half now. And if you take my age and investing profile or whatever, that's a dumb decision if you think, hey, you could make a lot of money now, invest that, and it compounds over time. But I wasn't really optimizing for that. I'm actually optimizing for like health and quality of life in the ways that make sense for me at this moment. And if I was optimizing for money, I would actually make different decisions. 
And so I've chosen to value other things, which I think as with all of our advice or philosophy here, this is very personal to us and it's not general advice that other people necessarily should follow, but we've come to terms with these things for ourselves, And that's one where I feel strongly, at least in my own life, and it may not make sense on paper to someone else with different priorities. So on that note, what I want to do next is quickly go through a couple scenarios. And I want to do this because I think maybe if people are listening, a fair pushback would be that the two of us collectively over the last several years have ascended. People don't know our particular financial situation, but I think it's clear that we are now in a much better financial place than we were before. And naturally, a family in a much better financial place can make financial decisions a lot easier. You can set up some of these rules. Like I'm sure some families would love to be able to say, I don't check in with you for anything under $1,000. What I want to do for fun is to see if we can figure out the things that we're still working on. So let me give you one example. We both have had to loan family members money at different points in our life. For me, that's close family members, like my immediate family, for you, maybe that's a little more distant. How would you feel if someone in my family came to me and said, hey, I need $50,000. So I'm not talking about a $1,000 loan, something a little smaller that we might not notice as much. Someone in my family said, hey, I need to borrow $50,000 and I wanted to do it. How would you feel? Because now it's our joint money. That's a good question. I think I've had to loan family members various amounts at different points. And so we've actually gone through some of these scenarios. But the first question is, can we actually do this? So I don't really want to talk too much about the specifics of $50,000 or Mm $10,000 or whatever it is. But is this viable? And what are the trade-offs or sacrifices we would have to make? Do we need to sell down our investment portfolio to be able to do this? And if so, is it important enough that we're willing to make that trade-off? Are there other ways that we can get around this? For example, you can take out a loan on your investment portfolio and do that at a relatively low interest rate. And so if your family pays you back over time, then that's actually not that big of a thing to do. And and you can keep letting your investments compound. And so some of this also relates to like market conditions. Do you want to sell at a low when things are really down? But you know, it comes down to what is the ask and what is our current situation? Maybe we could cut down expenses and just get income in the bank and be able to do that. But I think in general, both of us will continue to encounter situations where our families need money. And the question is whether or not we can do that. And in fact, today, we haven't even talked about this. I loaned money to my cousin who needed it in a short-term bench. I think I've done this maybe five times over the course of me and his relationship. And he's paid me back over time in a reasonable time period. And so that's another question as well is what is the likelihood that you get paid back? And that would vary with different family members, right? Yes, it definitely would. Let me throw one more question at you in this realm. This is unlikely because it's not true. But if I was very interested in collectible cars or expensive cars, which is something that neither of us is actually interested in, but if I wanted to go and buy one of these really expensive cars, talking six figures, which we don't need, but I really want it. How would you think about that? Again, some of it comes down to the timeline and what it requires of both people. And so right now, just to get specific into our circumstance, you have a full-time job, you're earning a good income. I'm on a less certain path. I'm trying to write a book. 
And an important thing for me is actually keeping our burn relative to our income pretty low to allow for flexibility in this path that may take a long time to pay off. And if you investing in a collectible car means that I need to go into full-time employment so that we can... (laughs) Then it is a no. (laughs) So that we can afford that investment, then it's at least a conversation that we need to have, which is like, how important is this to you? And I think it always comes down to that. And okay, so this is really important to Steph. I now have to go find a job. Is that really worth it to you? And I guess there would be cases where that is true. And it's like, the the clear example for me is having children. When I have kids, the way in which I value my own personal freedom or ability to pursue creative pursuits that don't have clear financial payoffs may be different. And that's just, hey, like you need to earn more money again because you have this infant that can't take care of itself and that requires income. And to me, that makes a lot more sense than say like a collectible car, but maybe there are cases where the collectible car makes sense as well. Luckily, I do not have an obsession with collectible cars. My obsessions these days include playing online chess, which costs zero dollars. So we're in good standing there. I had one follow-up as you were talking, which is just a question which I actually do not know the answer to. Given that we now share money in the timeline since we have shared money, have there been things that I have spent on that have bothered you? And that could be because I'm spending too much on something. You don't think that thing is worth that amount of money. You don't like the way that I'm thinking about what we're spending on or have these money rules actually done as a service in that you feel at ease with how the other part of the pair is spending money. I think from an expense perspective, there's nothing that comes to mind where you did anything egregious that I didn't agree with. From an investment perspective, I think sometimes that's a little suspect. (laughs) (laughs) And specifically, your dad follows the markets pretty heavily and often will recommend things. And I don't always understand those things. And I don't think that you do either. And at least, (laughs) okay. And so you make those decisions freely and it actually doesn't bother me any more than maybe like when I hear about it and I'm like, ooh, I don't know if we should do that. But it's mostly from the perspective of, I want to have a simple investment portfolio that we both understand that allows us to sleep at night. And even if it was a really good financial opportunity, if we don't understand it, I always think what happens if he can't advise you anymore for one reason or another, what do we do in that situation? Because every investment you need an entry and an exit plan. So that's probably the only thing where I'm like, I don't know if that's smart, but do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm done grilling you. But I just wanted to ask those questions because I feel like money is something that no couple gets perfectly. And it sounds like we've actually got things mostly aligned and we're happy with the way that we're treating money within our relationship. But I just wanted to see if I could poke some holes. Yeah, what about me though? For what? Same questions. Actually, there there is an example on the first one around loaning money to family. At one point, maybe two years ago, I had to loan a substantial amount of money to my grandparents when they were selling their house and moving into a new house. And it was actually quite a large amount for me and even us collectively. And thankfully, we had a lot of cash at the time. We actually did this interesting agreement where I loaned them half the money and then you provided the other half, and this is even before we were engaged. But the way it was structured was we did a loan agreement between me and you where I had to pay it off over some period of time, which was contingent upon them paying me back. But I think that was an interesting thing where 
I don't, were you comfortable with that? To be clear, the interest was zero. So if people think that I was <laughs> making money off Cal and his grandparents, that was not the case. Luckily, I had a lot of cash. So it was to me actually in that scenario, a little bit of a no brainer. So long as you felt confident that we were going to get that money back from them and you did. And I also have met them several times and know they're super trustworthy. And so for me, it didn't bother me at all because I had the cash on hand. And I think to your point earlier, it'd be maybe different if it was like, I need to liquidate these things or I need to go and do a bunch of work to make this happen. But for me, it was very simple in that one circumstance. And what about on the spend question? Is there anything that I spent on that you've been uncomfortable with? I feel like that's probably more likely. I mean, there actually was one time where I bought a $5 bottle of water in the airport. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) Okay. That's actually very... That's a good example because I think it applies to every other example where there have candidly been times, and you know this, but where your spend choices, it's almost like it alerts the animal brain or whatever brain existed back in the day of, oh, this is too expensive for what it is. So it has never been a case where you've spent too much money on aggregate where I'm like, oh my God, Cal spent $10,000 this month or anything like that. It's always these small things. So to get to specifically what you mentioned for people who were not there in the San Francisco airport, (laughs) you were thirsty. (laughs) And we, we went to some place in the airport. I was buying something, some sort of food. And at that place, you decided to buy a bottled water. <laughs> Sounds so ridiculous. <laughs> now, and the bottled water cost $5 or something like that. And I just in my scarce mindset was thinking, I'm already buying something here. They can give you tap water. It's literally in the law, they have to give you this tap water. You didn't want the tap water. And so we got into kind of a scuffle about the fact that you spent $5 on water when you could have gotten it for free. And I think that is actually a good comparison to other times when I have been a little rattled by something you've spent on. In retrospect, like if you give me a week to think about it, I don't care at all. Like literally zero resentment from anything you've spent in the past. But sometimes it is a little just, whoa, I wouldn't have spent that. But if we were to share more examples, they would all be just like the $5 water. Yeah. Thankfully, we now have this spend freely on anything under $1,000 rule that I can fall back on if stuff ever falls into animal brain when I just try to hydrate in the airport. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy, that's embarrassing. And actually what's funny is now when I go back into those habits, you have this story so you can bring it up in the moment of, is this going to be another $5 water situation? And jokes aside, this kind of falls back into, I think, one of the few things I want to close out on. This isn't necessarily in our rules, but we try to hold each other accountable and to support one another with money. The reality is that me and you are going to continue to fall into scarcity mindset at different points and or we just have a lot going on in our lives and something related to money triggers us to go into a downward spiral. And I think little by little over time, we've been able to recognize what those triggers are and how to support the other person, mostly emotionally and psychologically as it relates to money. So when I look at the markets and things are going down and I'm starting to feel like my whole world is just caving in on me and everything becomes tense and I get this little tight feeling in my chest, 
you can sense that in some ways. And sometimes you can alleviate that by just sensing it and letting me know that things are going to be okay. And the reverse is true as well. Yeah. We met with a couple last night and something they said, we asked for marriage advice because they're married and we recently got married. And they basically said that you can't break down at the same time. When one of you breaks down and because you know each other so well, you can see that coming, you step up for the other person. And I think money for some strange reason is super emotional for people. So I think we actually sense that as well with each other. I can sense when you're going into a scarcity mindset, partially because you make it super obvious and say, we can only buy black beans. But I think it's important to align on things, which again, some of our philosophies may sound super obvious, but by actually sitting down and agreeing to them as a couple, I think that was really important because now we have these ground rules that we can align around. And as long as we have trust within that, I think we can actually, because we are a couple that tends to be more scarce, push each other when we need to actually get away from that. So I want to talk about three more quick things that actually get into the details of some of the stuff in case people are interested in that. You game? Yeah. Cool. So the one is, I just call this the nuts and bolts. And so in the arc of our relationship, we have from the beginning pretty much split everything 50-50. And let's just say not all relationships operate that way. Yeah. And especially, I think one of the things that's interesting for most of our relationship, I was, I think, making substantially more money than you were and also had, I think, learned how to spend money more freely on things earlier than you did. And I know we've talked about in another episode where you were uncomfortable for a period of time, particularly in our first year together when we were traveling in Europe and maybe we were going to dinners and or just spending money in ways that didn't align with your idea of what you wanted to do in your financial picture. And so that was a little bit of a tough period. Yeah. Let's just say if people haven't heard that episode, I was not chill with spending 30 euros on pasta in Italy. But that pasta was so good. It was really good pasta. But as you said, Cal, we were in very different financial situations. And actually, I would say coming back to that earlier question of when I felt like spending was out of order for some reason. That's when I most felt it, but it was mostly because we were just in such different financial pictures. And zooming beyond that, so we moved in together, we lived in California, and then basically how we operated for a couple of years was I paid for everything on my credit card. And then we kept a spreadsheet where I just recorded all of the expenses and we basically split those 50-50 and you would reimburse them from your bank account. That's correct. And then this year is actually when we started doing things differently. So probably like six to seven months after we got engaged, we actually set up a joint bank account where our incomes would flow into. And from that point onwards, basically all of our expenses, so the credit card payments, the apartment and all the other things, they would come out of that joint account. And that was, I think, a big change for us. And even to this day, we still keep different investing accounts. So that's one where we still haven't fully merged. Yeah, I think that's the next stage. Yeah, so we still have work to do on that front. And then the second piece is just around financial contribution. So as I mentioned, we split expenses 50-50. I think both of us came in to when we got married with roughly equal net worths, which was actually very helpful for us. But at the same time, actually, one thing that is interesting from this year is that while I made more money than you for most of our relationship, 
actually that has changed. You make substantially more than I do. And I'm now on a path that doesn't have as certain of income guarantees. And so we've had to adapt in that situation where it's like, how long can I go on this path where I'm not contributing equally? And I'd be curious to hear how you think about that. That's actually something that when we spoke about this in the very first conversation, which I brought up at the beginning of this podcast, when you asked if I go this other route and I decide to leave my job, would you support me? And you said, I can't, (laughs) I said, no, I can't remember exactly all of the parts of why I said no, but I do remember one part of that being that we were earlier in a relationship. And so I had less of a sense of where that could balance out. And actually something personal for me, which you know, but maybe others don't, is that my parents were in a relationship where my dad was wonderful, but my mom had a full-time job, but also took a lot of the other duties that happen within a family. I think maybe there's some baggage from that where if I'm the one financially supporting the family and going to work, I can still do other things, but I would want to see some balance. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because I've seen a lot more of that recently. So I think you've mentioned this several times and I don't think we can reinforce it enough in terms of the decisions and operational (laughs) work that you do for the family. So I think coming back to this, I actually don't know if there would need to be an end to this setup if it works for us. As in, if I really like working and creating things, which is the case, and I can't see that not being the case, and you enjoy some of these other things more, you've been coaching golf and you do a lot of, again, the operational stuff for the family. And if you enjoy that, I actually think that's a pretty good setup. I think that would naturally need to change if one or both of us no longer liked that, I guess, partnership. And just to clarify what you're saying, basically, you contribute more financially, but there are areas, whether it's planning our vacations or the things we do, or making things easier for your life or taking care of the house or whatever it may be, there's areas where I've stepped up as I've been able to contribute less financially because of my own choices, where you're like, hey, this is actually a value add and I'm really comfortable with this situation. And if it needs to change, we'll change it. But that's been an adjustment for us this year where instead of just being equal partners contributing financially, full-time roles, we've changed things in a way that we're thinking about value differently than just like pure money generated. Exactly. And on that note, I think when we originally had that conversation, we were not, we truly were not, as you might say, a family. We are now married. And I think there is a big difference not just in this like official line of marriage, but over time where when you're earlier in a relationship with someone, you do view things more transactionally because it's more of, oh, is this person going to leave me? Or I don't know how deep our connection is. And therefore it needs to be more like tit for tat. Hey, I give this and you give this. But when you're in a family, I don't think about even outside of romantic relationships. I don't think about, oh, like my mom gives me this, so I give her this. No, you just want to support someone and they want to support you. And it doesn't need to be equivalent in the same ways. And so that's why now I have way fewer, if any, qualms with, oh, I just make a bunch of money and this is for my family. And like we just, we use it together. (laughs) To me, that doesn't even need to be related to what is Cal giving back to this. It's just the way we operate as a couple. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I guess we're figuring out as it goes, but I imagine this becomes even more important as you have kids and just life changes. And I think we've both accepted that life ebbs and flows. And that means like the income that you or your partner generate also ebbs and flows. And it's just more about learning how to ride those waves and figure out how it works for both people versus trying to keep some equal split or something like that at every moment in time. Yes, exactly. So the last thing I want to cover is just lifestyle choices. So especially because you've chosen a path where you're going to keep ascending in your career, continuing to move up the ladder in different ways and earning a stable income. And I've gone off on this more creative path, if you will, that just doesn't have that same payoff. And I think one of the areas that we haven't experienced a ton of tension, but that has the potential for it is just lifestyle choices. So if I had to characterize it, we both want to live a life of adventure where we spend freely on the things that bring us happiness. And we've talked about some of our rules in the philosophy. Underlying that, at least if I think about my perspective, it's keeping a low burn rate relative to our income, which means like no expensive houses, no overly indulgent cars, no material possessions like a boat that require a lot of upkeep. And there certainly is the potential that at some point earlier than I'm ready for, you may want some of those things. And so I mostly want to mention that because that's just like an open end for us where I think right now we're roughly aligned, but at the same time, there could be a road where maybe there needs to be a change based on your preferences or potentially my preferences. Yeah. But I would say that you mentioned earlier that we're maybe more aligned than the average couple on money specifically. And I think one of the reasons that is true is because we both at least currently, do not have an appetite for some of these things. It actually stresses both of us out to think about buying a boat, for example, and upkeeping it or buying something way out of our means, which is not the case for everyone. So absolutely, these things can change. But I think that's actually been an underpinning of why finances have worked for us for the most part, because you mentioned trust earlier, and it would be true that it'd be harder to operate in general if I had these like floating thoughts of, oh, shoot, is Cal going to go buy a car today? <laughs> or is Cal going to go buy a bunch of designer clothing that I don't think we need? Or is Cal going to just always buy the most expensive option of X, Y, or Z? And I don't get that sense. And I don't think you get that sense about me. So it does underpin the way that we operate. All right. Sounds like we're good. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe I will develop a very expensive habit soon. But on that note, I think for me, the main takeaway of this episode is really that money is extremely emotional, regardless of where you came from. And I think it's important to really have a conversation about money, especially if you're sharing it with someone. And we've developed our own rules or philosophy, and I would encourage people to develop their own. Well said. All right. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. It's our first episode where wine has been in hand. So let us know what you thought. And you can find me at Steph Smith IO on Twitter. And you can find me at Calvin underscore Russell on Twitter. All right. Thanks for listening. Until next time.